Welcome to the Radioactive Summer Break. Serving up community conversation and more music discovery weeknights at 6 all summer long. I'm Laura Jones, and coming up tonight, I'll be sharing a clip from a panel conversation following a recent Juneteenth and Utah Film Center screening of the documentary Nation Time. William Graves was the filmmaker. He was also the executive producer of Black Journal, a public television show that aired on the National Education Television Network. That's the predecessor of PBS. So Nation Time is a film about the National Black Political Convention held in Gary, Indiana in 1972. It was considered too militant to be broadcast on national television at the time. I'll tell you where you can still see the film, but heading into the July 4th holiday weekend, I really wanted to share what folks in our own community had to say about the film and how the past is still present. My thanks to Russell Roots, community outreach manager at the Utah Film Center, for sharing this audio with Radioactive. But to start us off, we're going to mash up songs of summer and meet the DJ. I spoke with KRCL's own Keith McDonald, co-host of Friday Night Fallout, to find out more about him and the music he loves. We'll get to that, but first, his own picks for our Songs of Summer playlist here on the Radioactive Summer Break. Uh, well, if I was, I, I would have to pick two. One uh, uh, song that's emblematic of summer for me is uh, Summer Madness by Cool and the Gang. Uh, my pops would play this every summer at the barbecue, and it's like my barbecue theme. So I dedicate that song to all the dads out there barbecuing for their families and friends uh, this summer. Stay safe and stay healthy. Um, and then as far as the show, it would have to be Summertime by The Fresh Prince and Jazzy Jeff. It was the first tape my mom allowed me to buy. Uh, Will Smith thankfully didn't use any profanity in his song, so I was allowed to play it when my mom was around. And it, it just, it just, it has those sounds in it that big, that band sound, that, uh, you know, that feel about it that there's no school, you know, you're out and about with your friends and family, enjoying the weather, enjoying the activities that you love, and getting out in your community and hopefully listening to KRCL while you're doing so. Thank you for playing Songs of Summer and doing Meet the DJ with me here on the Radioactive Summer Break, Keith. Thanks for having me. Keith McDonald from Friday Night Fallout joining me for a Meet the DJ conversation. Hey, Keith, how you doing? I am doing well. How are you, Laura? Not bad. I want to know how your summer's going, first of all. Uh, it's been busy. Um, I'm starting back up at the U in a master's degree program, so kind of getting all my ducks in a row to, to become a student in the writing, writing and rhetoric program. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hosting the show and, and keeping track of my daughter, so that's enough to keep anybody busy. Oh, my my gosh, that's a ton. And in the middle of the heat that we're having, not to mention the year that we had. So I got a few burning questions that I want to put to you as one of KRCL's DJs. And the first of all, that is how you approach doing Friday Night Fallout with your partner in KRCL, Nate Chacon. Um, how do you guys approach the show? Is it just fun and frivolity? Or are you trying to do a little bit more there? Uh, it's definitely a little bit more. I think as a the the stewards of a hip hop show in a, on a community based radio station. I think there's a lot of responsibility there, and uh, our, our first uh, kind of mission statement is to to uh, 
to promote local artists. So uh, I think we do a lot of even more than playing their music. We do a, a little bit of coaching, uh, public relations coaching, uh, interview coaching, uh, uh, coaching on how to get your songs clean and ready for the radio. And I think that's the biggest function of our show is to kind of impact our community at a level where we can kind of reach with our own our own uh, arms, you know. I remember one of the very first shows you did, you started doing week by week going from West Coast to East Coast to all the different types of, you know, quote unquote, communities of hip hop and rap. Yeah. So we started around three, four years ago, I want to say. Took over and the show, we yeah. Started, yeah, we started out doing uh, theme shows to kind of let the, the listeners know who we were and kind of what we thought about these different regions. And then also to kind of just gauge what people liked and, and, and uh, disliked to see where, you know, we wanted to be as a show. Now we don't do as many theme shows unless we have an interview or something big's coming up like Radiothon or something like that. But um, mainly we, we try to keep things... Uh, as local as possible, you know, as underground as possible. And then while not ignoring the classics that our, 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 our listeners have grown to love, you know. Do you feel like the genre you you explore on Friday Night Fallout is uh, uniquely suited to do that in terms of a conversation beyond music? Because hip hop and rap is so much, you know, the poetry of the streets is an old saying, a chronicle of our times, et cetera. Yeah, I definitely do. I think it's it more so along the lines of a voice for the the disenfranchised, a voice for the young, you know, and and that's something that I'm always trying to be cognizant of is to bring more young voices into the fold, bringing more femme voices into the fold as it can be a, a, a male dominated genre. Um which is why we've reached out to Spy Hop, which is why I'm reaching out to places like YouthWorks and and uh, other community organizations to kind of keep the the young energy in it because I think that um, one of the biggest uh, divides in hip hop is that age divide, is the old school and the new school. It used to be the East Coast and the West Coast. And I fear that commercial commercialization of the genre often leads to these binaries that doesn't help the community. So I think it's also our job to kind of bring, bridge the gap between these, these different factions and, and, and kind of uh, show our commonalities and the things that we all love about, about the genre so that it, it brings us back to where we're at at KRCL, which is bringing community together and amplifying community. You mentioned your dad. And you've been on the show before talking about being a military veteran. What mm. what does that mean to you today in 2021, those two things? Oof, the veteran thing is heavy <laughs> with the with the politics of the world and, and the things going on in our, our judicial system. It's just a it's a it's a very heavy uh position to be in, to be of uh you know, an African American and also have military background. Um there's a lot of uh it's a lot of things that that contradict each other, you know, but um, I think that the, the the number one thing that I draw on is being a father and and being able to see the the potential in young people. Like I see the potential in my daughter and thinking to myself, like, what would I want somebody to say to my daughter in these situations, you know, with their art, with with their hard earned, you know, with their hard um work and their their projects and everything like that. So I think that being a dad and being a veteran has a big impact on me as far as the show, because I can't separate myself from those experiences when I get on the mic. They're always with me wherever I'm at. So um, 
I have taken sort of a fatherly figure to some people in the community, and I have used my, the the things that I learned in the military as far as discipline, as far as kind of uh, you know, keep getting my bearing about places and kind of kind of fitting in and 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 going towards what the the team goal is, say at KRCL, and applying those things to what I'm doing on the radio. Same time, you're a black man in a very white state. Uh, do you address that through music through the show? Yeah, I definitely do. I definitely think that um, coming from Chicago and coming from a predominantly black neighborhood where my experiences uh, culturally were probably opposite to a lot of my peers here in the community, that some of the music that I grew up listening to, some of the the um, the meanings that I got from those songs are different. Um, I've discussed, uh, for example, common songs with some of my my friends and, and told them that I don't think they might might have a deep understanding of those songs because they didn't grow up in the neighborhood and might not know what a sto- what he meant by a stony island state of mind or the six or the five and and, and symbolism and things like that because. Um, it's hard. You know, it's difficult to break down something from a different region where people have, have been uh, forced to speak in coded language, mm. you know? So um, I think that um, that's part of the reason why I wanted to be a DJ here. Uh, part of the reason why I feel like I can add a uh, value uh, in the community is because I feel like in certain instances, I'm, I, I have a, a unique and a, and a deep understanding of the content in the, in the culture and not just the superficial things that were sold. Well, you sent me some photos recently of a project you were working on with youth in the community. What have you been doing this last week? Yeah, so uh, yesterday I went out with Youth Works uh, to Guadalupe Park over on the north side, and I think it's Rose Park. I'm pretty sure it's Rose Park out there on the northwest side of the city, and uh, we are planning on putting a tiny library into the ground. So some of my friends needed community service work. We put together and painted uh, tiny two tiny libraries, one of which is going up in Guadalupe Park, as I mentioned, and the other one I'm thinking will go up uh, somewhere on the Jordan River Trail around Riverside Library. The purpose is to... Uh, get literature, free literature out into the communities of the West Side and have the the young people at YouthWorks and other nonprofits that deal with young people kind of give us ideas on books and uh, themes and authors that they feel that young people should be privy to. How can people get in touch to help you with that kind of work? Uh, you can contact me at krclkeith at gmail. Uh, we are always willing to create or help facilitate the creation of new tiny libraries for your community uh, service group, your nonprofit. And um, we also have other uh, things that we do like uh, event planning, um, uh, workshops, uh, back to school drives and things like that, that we, that we uh, with uh, entities like the Herc and spy hop and, and the boys and girls club to kind of get services and, you know, good, good intentions and good vibes around young people. And of course, folks can always tune in for Friday night fallout Friday nights at 1030. Cause you always talk about it there too, right? Indeed. Indeed. Keith McDonald, co-host of Friday night fallout, which starts at 1030 each Friday night here on KRCL 90.9. Thanks Keith for doing meet the DJ with me. Here's that other pick by Keith for our songs of summer playlist. It was the first tape my mom allowed me to buy. Summertime.
DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. Drums, please! (laughs) DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, Summertime and Summer Madness from Cool and the Gang. Those two songs of summer added to our playlist courtesy of KRCL's own Keith McDonald co-host of Friday Night Fallout. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the last two weeks of Keith's show, which he hosts every Friday at 1030 with Nate Chacon. You're listening to the Radioactive Summer Break. I'm Laura Jones. And last month, as part of its Juneteenth programming, the Utah Film Center screened Nation Time, a documentary on the National Black Political Convention held in Gary, Indiana, In 1972, Russell Roots led a panel discussion with local luminaries. Here's Russell. So tonight we are covering the film Nation Time, which was a documentary by William Greaves, uh, who was also the executive producer of Black Journal from 1972. And it's a deep dive into the political and economic aspirations of the Black community uh, from that period of time, which was actually quite a tumultuous period. Now, for those that were not familiar with what led to that period of time and what was represented on screen during the film, I wanted to give a quick chronology to really kind of help bring you up to speed. So at the beginning of the film, you started off with a really great discussion by Richard Hatcher, who was the first elected black mayor of a large US city. That was in 1967. So we're starting just a few years before the film takes place in 1972. In 1968, you have some very big moments. You have the assassination of uh, Martin Luther King, Robert Kennedy. You have Lyndon Baines Johnson announcing that he's not seeking a second term. And then you also have the Democratic Convention in Chicago that erupts into utter chaos, uh, which leads to uh, the arrest of a numerous anti-Vietnam War protesters and uh, 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 Black Panther co-founder Bobby Seale, who was also in Nation Time. Um, So you step forward from 1968 to 1961, sorry, uh, stepping forward from 1968 to 1971, you have Shirley Chisholm, who was the first black woman to run for the Democratic nomination of the U.S. presidential office. And then you step forward from 1971 to 1972, which is when the Gary National Convention takes place. And then from there, you step to 1975, which is When the Vietnam War ends, so the Gary National Convention is also taking place during the tumultuous time of the anti-Vietnam War uh, protests. And then I wanna step very, very far ahead because this film is lost after 1972 when it airs and it's not rediscovered until 2018, which is when someone happens to find it in a Pittsburgh warehouse and gets it into the hands of the Hollywood foreign press, Jane Fonda and the others who begin the restoration process who were able to re-release it for us to watch it today. So it's a fascinating journey to go from where we started to where we are today. But again, I wanna step back and get just a little deeper into what happened in 1972. Uh, Miss Betty, can you tell us about what you were doing in 1972 and what your memories were of the political climate and that presidential election? 1972, those are some great times in, in a lot of ways. I was a sophomore at Morgan State University in Baltimore, Maryland. At the time it was Morgan State College. And as most college campuses, uh, our HBCUs were politically, very politically active at that time. 
And so during those 70s, during the early 70s, again, with Shirley Chisholm running on a major party, we were all elated and looking how we could help, whether stuff envelopes or ghost stick signs in people's jars or whatever it took. And at the same time, there was this dichotomy of wondering, will it make a difference? You know, will we ever get to have a black person be president? And all of that coming at the same time uh, Vietnam War, that was a big thing on our campus and the concern that, uh, you know, a lot of Blacks were the first ones to go to the front line. So we were even protesting on campus about that and, and you know, talking about how do we get more young men in college so that they don't have to worry about the draft. And we're hearing stories from family members and friends back home who had lost loved ones in Vietnam and all of that. So it was a very, very interesting and active time politically. And, and just like any other college campus, a lot of it centered around the music at the time too. So everyone we were listening to were singing songs about what was going on at that particular time. And that gave us even more uh, energy and impetus to stay involved. Wonderful. Uh, that, and I think that makes a, a lot of sense. I mean, you look at historically like uh, films like Black Power Mixtape and you really look at the historical significance that music played through uh, the Black protest struggle. Um, and I think, you know, it still plays right up on through today. Um, for those of you who are not as well seasoned as Miss Sawyer, uh, <laughs> what were your greatest takeaways from this film? You know, step in, let's see, James, you know, what were your thoughts about watching this film? I assume for the first time. Yeah, well, um, I, yeah, I saw this film for the first time, but many parts of the discussion uh, I've always witnessed from my older cousins because they were very politically active. But one of the most astonishing parts of this is what they were talking about then in 1972 is still unresolved and those are our biggest complaints today. So to me, the lesson is what have we not done between 1972 and 2021 that keeps us in the same position. So for me, I mean, that speech from Jesse Jackson, that's probably the best speech he had ever given. And if that Jesse Jackson was still Jesse Jackson today, I mean, he would fire up all of the youth um, like he did back then. I, I agree. In doing some research on the film, I was uh, watching uh, an interview between the film's, the director's son, David, and, uh, one of the persons who actually helped produce the event. And he was saying that was really the speech that broke Jesse Jackson. So, I mean, as well, that's a lightning bolt. I kind of wish I still had that Jesse Jackson. I know he's out there somewhere, but <laughs> now I'm looking at who's the next person. So, uh, Darlene McDonald, what are your thoughts replicate on the film? A few thousand times. Replicate, replicate that Jesse Jackson a few thousand times to get that speech out there. Yeah. I agree. I agree. We need that. Darlene, your thoughts. I would love to replicate that Jesse Jackson 2,000 times. Unfortunately, many of them end up not being with us anymore. Um, we have a history of assassinations in this country, so I would be very worried for that next um, Jesse Jackson. When I watched this film also for the first time, it really made me think about our political capital as African-American political capital and recognizing that, and they absolutely recognized that 
in the film and was speaking to that political capital. And it wasn't being um, devoted to a particular political party as well, because you have issues with both parties. The African-American has issues with the Democratic Party as well as issues with the Republican Party. So it wasn't like they were trying to be completely obedient to any one party. So, but speaking to political capital. So that's really was my biggest takeaway from the film and recognizing that, and as James was saying, also recognizing that in the time that we're in right now, because we came back to that especially in twenty in the 2020 election and really just pushed hard on our political capital to be able to change a political landscape. And we see some of the repercussions of that in state legislatures of what's trying to happen as a result of African-Americans really showing up to vote in 2020 and expending that political capital. So that was my takeaway from that moment and from the film. Yeah, and it really is a powerful one. It, uh, <clears throat> one in five, as Jesse Jackson says in 1972, you know, that's what a black American was uh, in relation to the rest of white America and the representation was just not there, nor was the uh, requisite power and access to power. So uh, being able to really make sure capital was uh, applicable was something that was extremely important. Uh, to continue on the theme of capital, Byron, what were your thoughts about the film? Well, you know, I I kind of saw something that made me realize that there's a, a sense of hope. And, and I say that because I thought that those were speeches that were a reflection of a time when you had to really actually do the math. And as Darlene mentioned, the political capital was if you add up <laughs> and do the math, that actually emboldens us, but it frightens others. And so I thought to this point that I just love the idea that we proved something this last election. And I, and I would say um, that, you know, that was done, especially in Georgia. Um, and I think that we saw um, an, an activity there that was about motivating people to realize that if they actually participated and they did it, there would be some success. And, and you know, I think that um, we, we look at that and we see that example and we think about the importance of storytelling because this film tells a story that was uncovered about people who were brave. I mean, think about that. I, I looked in the film and I saw the signs of Utah <laughs> I'm just thinking, wow, who were those people who were brave enough to actually show up and actually make a voice? The sign from Utah was there a lot. I was a little suspicious because I didn't see any folks, but I know that they were there. Um, but I think about, you know, some of these great orators and some of these amazing um, celebrities, but it really is the Stacey Abrams of today that is our absolute blueprint for how we're going to succeed. And with all of the repression, sorry, but all of the repression of voting rights and all of the idea that these numbers scare people so much that they have to actually cook the books. They have to move the, 
the yard line, whatever you call that, I'm not good with sports, um, but, but the actual, to, to, to think that we can make that difference, that our numbers, our political capital is there, and that there are people who are allies too, right? It isn't just the fact that we have X amount of black people in this country or people of minority status in this country or multicultural status in this country, but we have people who actually feel that it's the right thing to do. And I think when you have people like Stacey Abrams who prove that if you step up and if you do this, it will actually make a difference. That's the reality of showing that action works and that participation works. I highly agree. Representative Hollins. Yeah, so there was two things that stood out to me in this film. Number one is the power and energy that you just felt <laughs> that was in that room. Um, it, it was absolutely amazing um, what was happening in that, in that room and that all of these people came together from all over the United States um, you know, to, to, to use their collective voice to try to make a change um, uh, in this nation. Um, it reminded me when I was in DC um, once and I was there for some convention or some meeting and I decided to get out and take a walk and ended up in a Black Lives Matter protest while I was there by accident, but uh, wanted to be there just to kind of observe everything that was going on. And when I was there, I remember there was this little man who was standing, who and he, he was standing away from me. And somehow he made his way over and was standing right next to me. And I, of course, he was so much in my space, I couldn't help but talk to him. And I asked him, I said, what do you, what's your thoughts on this, um, on this um, protest? He said, you know, this is the same energy that I felt when I was here with Dr. King and I marched with him. He says the same energy and I think we're gonna, these kids are gonna make some change. And so with that, the second thing was, was the issue piece. And a lot of the issues that they're talking about then can, we can talk about now. It's the exact same issues. You have people who are feeling disenfranchised by the political system. They feel the political system is not working for them. You know, and so they're urging people to get out and vote the same way, you know, we have been urging people to get out and vote. You know, one of my um, biggest things is, is conversations with young people right now who are saying that they feel their vote don't matter. It doesn't matter. And I have to remind them, well, yeah, it matters because people are it, it, people are trying to suppress it. So, yes, it, it's, it's very valuable. That's why all of these suppression laws are occurring. And so a lot of the, that was the main two things for me. It's just the, the energy and, and the same issues, the same battles um, that, that we're still fighting today. I, I would agree. Um, <clears throat> to kind of set that off though, one of the things I think is super interesting about the political climate today is that we have this ability that there are more women than we've ever had or more LGBTQ elected officials than we ever had, black if not of other colors than we've ever had. And it's been really wonderful. One of the things that really stood out to me uh, about Nation Time was the lack of significant screen time for women in the film, particularly any mention of Shirley Chisholm, who was running for president that same year. Um, can some of, the, some of the women here speak to their thoughts about that? Sure, I can speak about it a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Shirley Chisholm chose to boycott um, this convention because her own 
colleagues, black colleagues would not endorse her um, as she was running for president because they felt that it, it should have been a black man who was running on that ticket first. And so I think a lot of this is a, ref well, I wanna say as a reflection of the times then, but some of it is a reflection of the times, <laughs> things that are happening um, yeah. um, right now in, in, you know, in our political system. And, and you know, I could just speak as a, a black woman who, who's on the front line, you know, and who has, we were talking earlier, who don't know her place. <laughs> Nobody has ever told me what my place is, and I'm crazy enough not to try to find out where my place is. I just got things I want to get done um, for my community, and so I do whatever I have to do to get get those things done. But I think it it, it was just a reflection. I'm, I wasn't surprised that well, I was I was surprised that she wasn't there. But when I started doing the history search and find out why she wasn't there, mm -hmm. I understood. And if I was there, I probably. I would have been in her corner saying, yeah, we should have been behind her and standing with her. That's Representative Sandra Hollins, Byron Russell, Salt Lake City Racial Equity and Policing Commissioner Darlene McDonald, former Utah GOP Chairman James Evans, Ogden NAACP's Betty Sawyer, and Russell Roots, Community Outreach Manager for the Utah Film Center, all speaking during a post-film discussion of Nation Time, which was screened as part of the center's Juneteenth programming last month. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the full panel discussion, as well as other resources curated by Russell. I'm Laura Jones, and two more community conversations to come this hour. A lot seem to be happening here as we're headed into the July 4th weekend. So coming up, a fast for immigration reform and how you can help plan roads in the capital city for the next 20 years. You're listening to the Radioactive Summer Break, bringing you community conversations and songs of summer. I'm Laura Jones, and I wanted to let you know that there are folks in our community fasting for a pathway to citizenship for essential workers. I asked Maria Montes of Comunidades Unidas to explain. All across the country, um, the movement for fair immigration reform has been organizing uh, since last year um, to come together in unison and create actions across the country that reflect the need for urgent action uh, to be taken by Congress to provide a pathway to citizenship, whether that's uh, a, a big piece of legislation for reform, like the one that President Joe Biden has already proposed, or whether that be piecemeal legislation, like what we're asking for today. We're asking for essential workers to be included in a pathway to citizenship because of the contributions and sacrifices they've made throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. By the time I could get you into the show to talk about this, the fasting has already happened here in Utah. Can you tell us about some of the folks who did fast and then share the petition and where folks can get it? Yes. So we have eight leaders, um, eight immigrant leaders who have stepped up to the plate uh, and began fasting on Wednesday, June 30th. Um, the group of fasters um, comes from a wide uh, set of um, spaces. We have fasters who um, are immigrants, undocumented immigrants themselves, who are ready to come out of the shadows um, and ready to push their own agenda forward. They've been asking to meet with Senator Romney for the entire year and haven't heard back from him. Um, we also have fasters whose family members are undocumented, 
We have fasters who have parents who are undocumented and they are afraid that after a long shift at work, they might not see their parents again. We have fasters who are doing this in solidarity for undocumented, undocumented immigrants in the state of Utah and want to show this, that solidarity through that personal sacrifice. In fact, there's a, a petition to go along with this, and that is, like you said, to urge Senator Romney to do something. What are you asking Senator Romney to do, and where can people find the petition? We're asking Senator Romney to make a space to prioritize sitting with our essential workers. These essential workers kept Utah running in the middle of a global pandemic. In 2012, Senator Romney said uh, when he was running for president of the United States, uh, that, quote, I won't round up people and deport them. That's not what this country is about. I'll just make it really hard for them to find a job. So hard that they will have no other option but to self-deport. These people that he wants to self-deport have kept his state running and open all throughout 2020 and all up until where we are right now in 2021. He says he is for families, that he cares about family unity, but so far he has not done anything to protect the families that have sacrificed everything and put themselves on the line to keep his state open and running. So these families want to meet with him. They want to share their stories with him. They want to be taken seriously the way they took uh, stepping up as essential workers seriously. The petition for anybody who um, is willing, able, ready to sign it and share it can be found on Comunidades Unidas' website. That's www.cuutah.org or at Comunidades Unidas' Facebook page, Comunidades U. Maria, we're doing songs this summer, and I thought I might ask you to dedicate a song to essential workers, to the folks fasting for a pathway to citizenship for essential workers as well. Is there a song you'd like to send out to them? I really would. There is a song called America by Los Tigres del Norte that talks about uh, what America means for immigrants. Here it is right now, KRCL 90.9. Check tonight's show post for everything Maria was just talking about. Thank you, Maria. Thank you so much, Laura. America, yo soy. Oh, you got to look up the translation, folks, because America is the entire continent, and whoever is born here is American. The color may be different, more as children of God. We are brothers in Argentina and Colombia, Ecuador and Paraguay, Brazil, Chile and Costa Rica, Salvador and Uruguay, Venezuela, Guatemala, Mexico, Cuba and Bahamas. All are American, regardless of color. That is Los Tigres del Norte. A live track with Calle Trece. This is the Radioactive Summer Break. I'm Laura Jones, and coming up at 7, Democracy Now! Thursday Night Psych with DJ Mike at 8, Gianni's Dirty Boulevard at 10.30, I Don't Sound Like Nobody with Rich at 1, and Don't You Miss Jolene's Illustrated Blues at 3 a.m. To close out the show tonight, the future of roads in Salt Lake City with transportation planner Joe Taylor. There's a job offer in here. Here's that conversation. Salt Lake City is kicking off a citywide master plan called Connect SLC to shape transportation policy through the next decade and beyond. What is a master plan? What is it used for? A master plan traditionally uh, in the transportation realm, at least locally, is often just a list of uh, projects, priorities. Um, We're really trying to get away from that with this uh, transportation master plan. The right away, the streets are Salt Lake City's biggest asset. 
you know, certainly in terms of size, but likely in terms of, of uh, cost as well. And so we want to um, engage with our, our citizens and the folks who, you know, work and go to school in our city um, and try and think about that as, as a whole system. What do we want our streets to do? Uh, how, do the, how do we want them to move us around? But also, you know, your street is out your front door of your home and, and where you work. Um, and so, you know, what, what, what do we want that to look like in terms of, um, you know, how, how, it, how you live in it and how it feels? I seem to recall back in my old business reporter days that the city already did this. So how old is the existing master transportation plan and why do we want to update this now? So uh, there is a 1996 plan and it is actually a really great document. Um, I go back to it a lot. Um, it's got a lot of good stuff and it kind of the spirit of it is the same. Um, a lot has happened in the way we get around and, and just the way we think about our environment um, and, you know, sort of the the things we're responsible to since since 1996. Yeah, Uber, um, bicycles, scooters, all of that. Climate change, uh, cars look a lot different. There's a whole host of issues that, that we just interact with and think about differently. So, yeah, it's, uh, although the 96 plan is is a great plan, um, it's, it's time for, for an update. You know, a lot of folks who can help or weigh in have the time on their hands or the luxury of their socioeconomic position to participate. How are you putting equity into this? Because I know that's a priority for Salt Lake City Mayor Aaron Mendenhall. Absolutely. And it's a huge priority for, for transportation specifically. Um, this is a community-driven plan. And the major thing that we're doing um, to respond specifically to your idea of you know time and money is we're forming right now what we're calling a community advisory committee. Um, and that's going to be composed of, you know, probably five to seven of our either citizens or people who work or go to school. Uh, and we're going to pay those people. We're going to give them $32 an hour um, to serve on our board and share with us their experience with, with the system of streets and what they want it to look like and how they want it to, uh, you know, to move and to feel. Um, and we're hoping that that, uh, you know, ability to, to compensate them for their time uh, opens up kind of a more broad range of applicants than we're used to seeing with city engagement. We'll put a link in tonight's show post for that application. What's the deadline on it? Uh, we are going to close that probably on the 9th of July. Uh, there's talk of extending that a little bit, but right now it's the 9th of July. The 9th of July, folks. So you got to move on this pretty quickly. Check the show notes tonight. You know, there's a lot of construction about town right now, and really it does me no good to complain about it today because the planning for that took place years ago. So this is also um, something people should keep in mind about why they should participate in, not just if they can be on the advisory council, but feedback at the open houses I'm guessing you're going to be doing, right? Uh, absolutely, yeah. And we're actually letting the advisory council dictate kind of the scope of our larger engagement. But this is an opportunity for folks to really get in and start uh, talking about what they want from their streets, you know, well before the bulldozer shows up to build whatever it is that we're going to build. What is the timeline for the actual work? And when will we be able to see the results, the fruit of this master transportation plan? So our community advisory committee would be working up through uh, a year, July of 2022. Um, and then we'll kind of churn that work out uh, into the fall of that year. 
So I think you can expect something probably by late fall or uh, early winter of 2022. All right. Magic wand. What's the number one thing for you, not only as a transportation planner, but as a road user? You know, the number one thing for me, I think more importantly than as a transportation planner or a road user is um, as a civil servant, that I need to really feel like I'm hearing from um, our community as a whole and not just those that uh, feel comfortable engaging with us, but really dig deep and and find out how the people who, who live on these streets feel about it and what they need from us. And then the city will use this document how? Uh, it will be both a policy document in terms of specific things like how we manage our curbs and parking meters, uh, and just sort of a general organization of our priorities um, in terms of the values and the goals that we hear from um, you know, the people that engage with us on it. So what projects we work on first, what projects uh, we devote our energy to, um, and, you know, what we're working towards. Are we working towards moving cars around fast, or are we working towards something more broad and holistic? What's the website for your transportation division? You can get to the division by going to www.slc.gov transportation. Um, and then if you want to do slash TMP, you can get to our, our plan. Now, Joe, I also have been doing this thing called Songs of Summer. So you got something on your playlist that you want to shout out to the community? You got a playlist when you go out for a hike, when you hit the road for a road trip, uh, maybe a, a barbecue with friends. Let's take it back to Oakland, California uh, in the late 60s, early 70s with Durando, didn't I? Oh, why? What's that, what's that one do for you? Oh, it's a beautiful, beautiful soul song, and you should, you should all check it out. We'll check it out right now here on KRCL Songs of Summer with Joe Taylor, Salt Lake City Transportation Planner. Thanks, Joe. Thank you.